anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Monday, May 15th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens, Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. And yes, we are here for a special afternoon edition of Out to Coop Live on a doubleheader Monday. Yes, it is indeed, everybody. It's quite a day. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can help support this show right now, becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. And you can help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And also, if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure that, you know, give us that five-star review. You know, let other people know. Leave a comment. Let other people know why you listen to the show. It helps other people find the show. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, Wherever you get your kind of streams, you're going to find Rick Smith. Head on over to ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. Really awesome stuff. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard, uh, The Signal is a new podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and is produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the podcast at buckscountybeacon.com. Right, or buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. And for all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's, The Game In is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts when they get A's on the report cards. How can you beat that? Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. Got a question about a game? Look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan. Again, two N's at SongAdayMan on Twitter. Oh boy, and we cannot let Paul Martino, Moms for Liberty, and their oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pact to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on Alto Coop Live, I mentioned it is a doubleheader Monday. Well, later on tonight at 7 p.m., we'll be right back here with Catherine Joyce, the investigative editor in these times. And we'll be talking about her recent article in Church and State called Mad Moms, a Christian nationalist front group claims to champion parental involvement in public education. Critics say there's a more nefarious agenda afoot. Mad Moms takes a deep dive into Moms for Liberty, their deep pockets and growing extremism. And yeah, couldn't be more fitting to have these two shows um, on primary eve here in Pennsylvania, everybody. Fantastic. But on today's show, right now, this afternoon, 1.30 p.m., here we are. I welcome Christina Marusic back to the show. We'll be talking about her new book, A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes Revolutionizing Prevention. 
While we've been waging a war on cancer for more than 50 years, it's not a war we're winning. Yes, treatments are better than ever, but cancer still claims the lives of one in five men and one in six women in the U.S. The astonishing news is that up to two-thirds of all cancer cases are linked to preventable environmental causes. If we could stop cancer before it begins, why don't we? That is the question, right? And that is the question at the center of this book. In A New War on Cancer, Christina Goat does a deep dive into the remarkable doctors, scientists, and advocates who are upending our understanding of cancer and how to fight it. They recognize that we will never reduce cancer rates without ridding our lives of the chemicals that increasingly trigger this deadly disease. Christina Marusic is a uh, sorry Pittsburgh-based, award-winning journalist who covers environmental health and justice for Environmental Health News. She holds an MFA in nonfiction writing for the University of San Francisco, and her personal essays and reporting on topics ranging from the environment, LGBTQ+, equality, and politics to feminism, food, and travel have been published in outlets ranging from CNN, Slate, Vice, Women's Health, The Washington Post, MTV News, The Advocate, and Bustle, among many many others. I am so thrilled to welcome Christina back to the show. Christina, welcome back to the show. Hi, Kevin. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I, you know, I, man, what a time to come back with this book, because this book is absolutely fantastic. I was talking to you about the, before the show, um, and I will say this to everybody right now before we get into it. Um, so I'll heap the praise on to say not only is this an important book, it is incredibly and beautifully written. I mean, it is the kind of writing that I think we need with these issues where we're hearing kind of the impacts in everyday people's stories, right? Um, and say, these are not just abstract policy questions, right? Or technical data. These are people's lives that we're talking about here and centering people's lives is what we need to be doing. And writing it in this way is just absolutely incredible. So congratulations just on the achievement itself, Christina, seriously. Thank you so much. It's really nice to hear. Yeah, and it's also good to know that I'm not alone in this because uh, just before the show today, Bill McKibben, yes, the one, the only Bill McKibben uh, was tweeting out about Christina's book. Yep, there it is right there. Got her book link there, there, ChristinaMarusik.com, right, uh, for her book, The New War on Cancer. Um, that's uh, just goes to show that, um, I mean, the book is already having some reach um, and people recognizing it's important. So congratulations. Thank you so much. And it, it just published on Thursday last week. So it is very hot off the presses. Yeah, literally. Uh, and I was I was saying to Christina beforehand, too, it's so like I'm sitting there. This was my break in between student grading because I was I was like plowing through the end of the semester grades and stuff. I was like looking for I'm going to take a break and I couldn't wait to get back to this book because it's so fantastic. So let, let's just before before we get into some of the kind of the main part of the book, I thought maybe we could set the stage a little bit in a couple ways like. One, just to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you kind of got into this particular kind of line or thread of kind of reporting and investigation. Uh, well, let's just start there before we get to number two instead of throwing your questions at you. Yeah, sure. So um, with this issue in particular, cancer and environmental exposures, um, in 2011, my younger sister was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and she was 25 years old at the time, which is very young for a cancer diagnosis. And thyroid cancer tends to run in families, uh, but no one else in our family had ever had it before, and no one else has gotten it since. So we were really left wondering whether her exposure to something in the environment might have played a role. Um, I'm an investigative reporter, as you mentioned. So in 2019, when I started working for Environmental Health News, I was still thinking about those questions. And I live in Pittsburgh. My sister lives in Pittsburgh, too. Um, and I wrote a five-part series on how air pollution uh, is likely tied to some of our higher-than-average rates of cancers that are linked to environmental exposures here in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania. And... Um, the series won a couple of awards, and I got a very nice note from a publisher saying, hey, congrats on those awards. I really love the series. Would you ever want to turn that into a book? And four years later, the book is here. <laughs> four, short, four short years later. Um, I should also mention that my sister is doing great. She's been in remission for a decade, and she's healthy, and she has two beautiful kiddos who I love being an aunt to. Um, so I know that 
you know, uh, cancer treatments and um, fighting for a cure are worthwhile endeavors. Um, They saved my sister's life. And I'm so grateful that we have those tools. But while I was reporting that series I did in 2019, I also learned some things about cancer and prevention that were really shocking to me. So one of them was that um, globally, only seven to nine percent of all cancer funding goes toward prevention. And um, I also learned while I was reporting that series that in the United States and then at the global level too, um, rates of certain types of cancers with clear links to environmental exposures um, have been pretty dramatically on the rise over the last 50 years. And that includes childhood cancer and cancers in uh, young adults, which is like people up to age 25, which also would have included my sister. Um, And while I was writing that series, I interviewed this really brilliant pediatrician and epidemiologist named Dr. Phil Landrigan, who later wound up writing the foreword to my book. And he pointed out that um, that's way too fast for these to be due to genetic changes, right? Because those tend to happen over uh, centuries, not decades. (laughs) And also that... um, we the basic diagnostic tests for like the most common type of childhood cancer, which is leukemia, is the same now as it was in the 1970s when we started tracking cancer rates. So this also isn't just a matter of we're diagnosing more of what's always been there, right? So he said this is a real dramatic increase in childhood cancer rates that we're seeing. And the only other option is that this is something in our environment. Um, and that really made me want to, you know, think more about this and dig into this issue more. Well, I mean, and so much really, I think, excellent investigative reporting comes from kind of the very stuff that you said, noticing kind of these connections or associations in a particular in a particular area within a particular network of, of people in neighborhoods um, exposed to the same backgrounds. And, and this is no different. Um, like you did in the investigative, um, you know, the, the four-part series that, that you did about kind of air pollution, it was like, you know, really, you know, people telling their stories and kind of being able to connect their stories and finding out it's the same story, mm-hmm. right? Yes, it might have exhibited, you know, started in a little bit different way with this person versus that person. Um, but nonetheless, um, they're having the same reaction in the same time frame in the same areas. So, you know, one of the things that um, that you do um, at, at the very beginning of your book, um, you kind of um, talk about um, this Dr. Margaret Kripke, um, and you have the, the story of Madalena, right, is kind of where we begin. But, and what, what I just, this, could you talk a little about what that Dr. Margaret Kripke, which she found, because I found it fascinating, like, to, to hear to kind of, like, spoiled as a spoiler alert already, but um, that, the first time that you had a, like a kind of a serious study on environmental impacts um, of you know chemicals on for cancer was in 2010. Mm-hmm. I mean that blew my mind, and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me! Can you talk a little bit about one? Say, you know, you started with with her voice, but also the story of Madalena, um, and then you talk a little bit about this problem about the way that we approach questions of um, say chemical safety or kind of environmental impact of this um, in the way that that happens was particularly in the United States. Yeah, so um, Dr. Margaret Kripke is a leading expert in um, skin cancers. And she's also a professor emerita at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And she served several terms on the US president's cancer panel. And that's this three person panel that advises the president of the United States on high priority issues related to cancer. Um, And that that panel also oversees the development and implementation of the National Cancer Program. And a lot of people don't know that that little governing body exists. Um, it's it's a really, uh, I'm glad that it does. And they put, you know, kind of the best cancer doctors we have on that panel and they have the president's ear. So in 2008, when Dr. Kripke was on the president's cancer panel, um, she learned that they were tasked with investigating environmental causes of cancer. And at the time, um, she did not think that was a good idea. She There was a single study from the 1980s that had indicated that um, pollution and chemical exposures caused just 6% of cancers. And that statistic had just been kind of widely repeated and accepted ever since. And so she thought, 
you know, that's not a good use of our resources if it's just this tiny proportion of cancers that can be linked to these problems. Um, but they did a two-year investigation um, that shocked her, and they they ultimately determined that up to two-thirds of all cancer cases are linked to preventable environmental exposures. And that's a bigger category than just um, pollution uh, and chemical exposures that also includes things like smoking and diet, kind of anything outside of the body and our own DNA. Um, but I'll also say that that estimate is conservative. So that was back in 2010 when they published that report. Um, and more recently, um, the hold on, what is the agency that did this? Um, the National Institutes of Health put that number even higher. Um, they say that 90 to 95% of cancer cases are caused by preventable factors, which is shockingly high. And one of the things Dr. Kripke told me is that while they were doing that research, they heard from um, you know researchers who'd been working on this issue and they were so frustrated. They felt like they'd been trying to ring the alarm about this for years. And you know they had done smaller studies indicating that this number was bigger that just didn't get the same kind of traction. Um, and she said it really struck her as something that was amiss in the field. That was how she phrased it, that these, these researchers were just desperate for someone to listen to them and so um, eager to talk about this and so um, relieved to be invited to talk about this with this audience, with the president's cancer panel. Um, but for Dr. Kripke, this was this big turning point for her. Um, and then she also learned that uh, there are around 80,000 chemicals used in products sold to American consumers, but fewer than 1% have ever been tested for toxicity or safety. Um, and that existing regulations on cancer-causing chemicals and consumer products are rarely enforced. And she said, I had assumed, as I think most Americans have assumed, that we're testing chemicals before they're put on the market and that if they're carcinogenic, they're regulated or they're removed. And it turned out that none of that was true. And it was totally eye opening for her. So since then, um, you know, she's now an outspoken advocate about this and she is eager to talk about this with anyone who will listen. Um, she also herself was diagnosed with cancer. Um, uh, or in, I think, like the mid 2000s. And I talk about this, you have a uh, in the epilogue of the book. Um, and, you know, she talks a lot about the extent to which she's glad she felt confident that she was going to be treated and she would survive. Um, but she would have much rather had prevention, right, that the experience of being treated for cancer is quite unpleasant. And she would have preferred to have prevention rather than a cure. Yeah. And you talk about this and she talks about this as this kind of reactionary principle, right? That we only, we wait until to find out, you know, people that have, you know, people who get cancer to kind of you know, be able to treat it on the back end of it. And there's that metaphor. I'm, I'm not sure if this is your metaphor or her metaphor. It says like, you know, it's basically like spending 95% of your or 97% of your resources, right? Um, it, like if you're going to war, right? You're spending on like treating the casualties <laughs> as opposed to like, you know, the offensive capabilities or preventing the war to begin with. Right. I mean, it's like saying, yeah. OK, let's just throw everybody out there on the battlefield and then whatever slaughter happens, then we'll treat that. But we're not exactly. going to worry about the causes of it. Yeah. Yeah. That one is my metaphor. And uh, I that I thought about that, too. I was like, you know, I'm no war expert, <laughs> but I'm pretty <laughs> sure if your war budget is that 94 percent of your funding goes toward treating soldiers who come back from the battlefield wounded and only six percent goes toward preventing them from getting hurt in the first place, you're not doing great. <laughs> <laughs> right. You kind of got war backwards. Right? Yeah. Right. Not a good strategy. Right, exactly. No. And then you also talk about this, you know, a perfect illustration of this, you know, with the SIDS, um, with the SIDS epidemic or, uh, you know, we saw this where say, we, you know, scientists basically say we can't understand why kids get SIDS, but then we find out that, oh, turns out in Hong Kong, Hong Kong, was it? Yeah. So or, yeah. Do you want me to tell the SIDS yeah, story? Yeah, please do that. I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, obviously we're we're here to talk about cancer and not SIDS, but I think this is like a public health victory that we can use to reframe the way we think about cancer prevention. Um, so in 1985, this groundbreaking study found that babies in Hong Kong were rarely dying of SIDS. And in Hong Kong, it was more 
culturally normal to put your babies to sleep on their backs. And so as an experiment after that, the Netherlands in 1987 launched um, a public health campaign telling parents to put their babies to sleep on their back, to sleep on their backs. Um, and it resulted in a steep decline in SIDS cases. And then in 1989, some American researchers were saying, we've got to do the same thing here. This could save babies' lives. And there was this big debate in the scientific community because another group of researchers felt like this is two studies. That's really not enough evidence to do something like this. Um, and they also pointed out that you know, there was a bunch of research funding thrown at this, but nobody could figure out why, why putting a baby to sleep on their back made them less likely to die of SIDS. Um, but luckily, the researchers who thought we should do it won that debate. And in 1994, uh, America launched its back to sleep campaign telling uh, parents to put babies to sleep on their backs instead of their stomachs. And in the decades since then, the United States has seen a reduction in SIDS of about 50%. So about 25 years later, uh, we still don't know. We still don't know why putting your baby to sleep on their back makes uh, SIDS less likely. And if we had waited until we had all those answers, how many babies would have died right. in the meantime. And so we're in a very similar place right now when it comes to environmental risk factors for cancer and childhood cancer, childhood cancer in particular, we have really, really robust data on certain environmental risk factors. And we actually have much more evidence now about uh, risk factors for childhood cancer than we did about SIDS in 1994 when that um, campaign was launched. So, you know, we've learned from our experience with SIDS that we don't have to wait until we have all of the answers before we can take action and start protecting people. Right. It's kind of like, you know, kids don't unnecessarily need to die just because you have imperfect understanding of like the causes of the whole thing. Right. If you know that those kids can be safe from dying. Right. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. sometimes sometimes scientists feel it's really important to wait until we know exactly what's happening at a cellular level that makes, you know, being exposed to pesticides, for example, um, make a kid more likely to get leukemia. And other scientists are like, it doesn't actually matter if we have a ton of evidence showing that that happens, right? We don't need to know exactly why before we can start protecting people. Certainly, we should keep trying to figure out why, but we can protect people in the meantime. 100%. I thought that was such a great frame for really for the rest of the book, because that seems to be the, all the researchers that you are like, you know, highlighting and spotlighting in here and, and the kind of range of research about prevention is really about kind of shifting that entire mentality in terms of how we approach this problem. So let's get into some of this. But as we kind of get one thing I'm just curious about and like to hear you talk a little bit about is, you know, we have Barry Breen as, um, you know, this woman who you start with this, you know, meeting in a park, right? Um, and you're telling the story and, and her story continues throughout the throughout the book, right? We get to hear about um, Barry Breen and, um, and this particular case. And then we get into these researches, we hear their stories too as well. So why start there? Why are we starting with kind of, you know, a story of a single woman um, and this kind of meeting with here and that personal story and her kind of, you know, trajectory and story throughout this, uh, her cancer? So Barry was diagnosed with breast cancer at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and it felt really important in this book to include a portrayal of what we're trying to prevent. Um, you know, you mentioned that we've gotten really good at treating cancer, uh, but treatment is also really difficult. It's really traumatic and it's painful and it's scary. And cancer survivors can have lifelong health complications related to either the disease or the treatment. There are some side effects um, for chemo that can affect you for the rest of your life after you go through treatment. Um, and as I mentioned with Dr. Kripke, you know, any cancer survivor will tell you that they would have rather had prevention than a cure. Right. Um, and then Barry also had an experience that's common to a lot of people who get a cancer diagnosis, and that is wondering if the choices she'd made had contributed to her disease. So when we do talk about prevention, you know, we've talked about this little tiny fraction of funding, just seven to 9% of all global cancer funds go toward prevention. And that small amount that does almost exclusively focuses on personal lifestyle choices like diet and exercise and not smoking. And as a result, 
a lot of people who get a cancer diagnosis immediately start blaming themselves. You know, she thought, is this because I smoked some cigarettes when I was in college? Is this because I'm not eating blueberries and leafy greens and uh, I like beer, you know, and that's a really common experience, especially for someone like Barry. Um, she didn't have any breast cancer in her family and she wasn't predisposed, genetically predisposed to it. Um, but she did grow up in a town that was once filled with oil refineries and she spent her adult oil living. city right i mean we're yeah, talking oil literally city. oil city <laughs> oil city pennsylvania which is the birthplace of the american oil industry yep um and she also you know spent her adulthood living in pittsburgh where i live um, which has really serious problems with air pollution and the county that encompasses pittsburgh allegheny county um, is in the top one percent of counties in the u.s for cancer risk from air pollution specifically and that is almost entirely attributable to the steel industry that we still have here. Um, the emissions from those factories are incredibly carcinogenic. Um, so, you know, I thought her story was really important because um, that when we when we leave those kinds of factors out of the story, we're really missing the whole picture. And um, it's not fair to to make people feel like. They have control over this through their individual choices and not acknowledge these kind of systemic problems that increase all of our cancer risk that are outside of our ability to control through our individual consumer choices. Um, you know, I think we live in a culture that really tells us that our only source of power is the way we consume, right? That we we can eat the right foods and buy the right products and we'll be doing good for the planet and we'll be protecting our health. Um, but I think story, Barry's story really exemplifies the reasons that actually we need to organize, right? We need to organize and we need to demand systemic change um, to correct these problems that are much bigger than just one person, things like air pollution. And then also um, the exposures we get in our personal care products, in our food, in our drinking water, um, and in the buildings we spend our time in. Well, this is one of the other, speaking right to the systemic aspect of all of this, right? Because once you start saying, okay, well, it's not just me, it's not just my personal choices, right? And there's like stories in there, people who got really pissed off once they found out, you know, I lived my entire life, had this healthy way, right? I followed all my TikTok videos where everyone said to me, you know, eat my greens and all this stuff, but still I got cancer, mm -hmm. right? And then we see layers of, you know, it's almost as if when we start looking through this lens of where cancer happens, right? It's also kind of a way of exposing kind of deep inequities within, within our society as a whole. I mean, so not only do we have talk about, you know, we're exposed exposed to industrial pollutants that are around particular industries, but you also kind of are, kind of, well, dig in and say, look, we also, you, you cannot, there's no way that you can address this without looking at systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that it disproportionately affects people of color. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I want to emphasize something you said, which is that um, these chemicals are that increase our cancer risk are so widespread that we just cannot shop our way out of this problem. And so I interviewed all these experts on this for the book, and I, I always ask them, so what do you do at your own house? Um, so I want to I wanna also just say that um, there's value in eating healthy and exercising and not smoking right. and in being careful about the products you buy. And there's value in that outside of just our cancer risk, right? Like those things all benefit our health. And so I would never discourage people from doing those things. But what I think is important to emphasize is that um, it's not it's not enough to just try and protect yourself in part because it we they're so widespread that it's just not possible to be totally effective. So um, all the people I talked to said, you know, even if you have a PhD in this subject matter, which most of the people I talked to for this book do, um, you just can't. It's just not possible to be a perfect consumer and completely avoid these chemicals in your own life. So we're really all in this together in the way that. Um, you know, we have to fight for legislation and regulations that will protect all of us at once. And another reason for that that you mentioned is um, equity, right? So not everybody has the money to only eat organic foods and not everybody has the time and the money to read every label for every household product they use and only buy the ones that are free of cancer-causing chemicals. Um, and then 
people of color in kind of every realm of their lives are disproportionately disproportionately exposed to higher levels of cancer-causing chemicals than uh, their white counterparts. So one thing I was really surprised to learn um, working on the book was that I think when we think of environmental justice communities, we tend to think of like low-income communities of color. But actually, um, a huge study found that... um, Americans who are people of color are exposed to higher levels of air pollution, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of whether they live in an urban or a rural environment. Uh, And uh, across all 50 states, this is true. And the reason for that is uh, redlining. So, um, you know, when we're not doing uh, redlining anymore, but this is one example of how systemic racism um, has effects that are still rippling through uh, our culture and our society, right? So when redlining was happening, um, people of color were kind of pushed into certain neighborhoods. And then those neighborhoods uh, are where undesirable stuff was put. So like highways cut through them and uh, industrial sites are there. Um, and this that's just one example of kind of many other ways this happens. Another one is that um, products, hair products in particular that are marketed to people of color, like relaxers and straighteners, um, tend to contain higher proportions of cancer-causing and otherwise toxic chemicals than similar products that are marketed to white women. Um, And one of the reasons that uh, use of those products in those communities and particularly among black women in the United States um, is more prevalent than it is among white women is that historically colonizers and enslavers, white colonizers and enslavers used differences in skin color and hair texture as justifications for treating black women as less than human. And so uh, erasing those features or, uh, you know, trying to striving to have straight hair to look more like a white woman became a survival adaptation. And obviously that's not directly in play in the same way anymore, but still today in the United States, um, a lot of workplace policies ban traditional hairstyles for black women like afros or dreadlocks. Um, and that's perfectly legal. So just last year, um, a federal bill that would make it illegal to discriminate on, you know, the basis of hairstyles, um, uh, was approved in, uh, the house and then failed to make it through the Senate that was called the crown act. So it's still legal for employers to ban traditional hairstyles. And even when they're not banned, a lot of times workplace, you know, it's perceived as being more professional for black women and women of color to have straight hair. Um, and this is all so this is all a lingering effect of systemic racism and is another way, um, in addition to air pollution and a host of other things that I cover in the book, that people of color are disproportionately exposed to chemicals that raise their cancer risk. Yeah, 100%. I was, I was, you know, when you, that part, you know, kind of digging down into even just like the hair products, and you can see like, okay, you know, uh, I, I remember actually a, a few years ago, I had a student who wrote about these kind of emergent product lines, right, that were targeted particularly for uh, kind of women of color. And, um, and talking about this kind of <clears throat> healthy lifestyle and things like this. Um, having read this part, that part of your book, or that kind of aspect of your book, it just gave me a whole other angle of perspective of how to read what was going on there, right? Not just simply as like affect, right? Um, mm-hmm. But actually, you're talking about as a health code, like a health issue, which is remarkable. Right. So, you know, I, I want to spend a little time for digging in. Obviously, we can't go into every single like person that you've uh, highlighted here. Um, but what I love about the kind of research and say the advocacy and the kind of work in communities that you're highlighting here, it's not just kind of say, you know, limited to the lab, right? We're breaking out of the lab and seeing what's happening in a range of communities and a range of sites, but they're all working on the same problem, which is this kind of getting away from this kind of reactionary principle and begins looking at prevention. So if you had to pull out maybe kind of like, you know, one or two of these researchers or these advocates to focus on to say some of their stories, we get a sense of um, the kind of things you look and we can dig into a little bit. Um, you got one of those that you'd be willing to pull out and kind of take us through a little bit? Yeah. So one one that I find particularly moving um, is Melanie Mead's story. And she's 
Um, I tell her story in the the final chapter of the book. And I think she's interesting to talk about here too, because she's in Pennsylvania. So she's a clean air advocate in Clareton, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes from where I am here in Pittsburgh. Um, and I first met Melanie when I was covering a press conference, I think in 2019, um, after Clareton had had like six days of code red air quality in a row. And um, code red is when the air is so polluted that you're advised not to go outside of your home right. at all. Um, so it's pretty severe. And Clareton has these regularly, and they also see the most polluted air in the country on a pretty regular basis. And the reason is that uh, Clareton is home to U.S. Steel's Clareton Coke Works plant, which is the largest um, the largest site in the country that produces Coke, which is an ingredient used in steel making. And it's really it's a really dirty business. So the way they produce it is by heating coal to extremely high temperatures in these giant Coke ovens. Um, and the emissions are extraordinarily carcinogenic. They're um, the main reason, as I mentioned earlier, that Allegheny County has such um, high cancer risk from air pollution. And Melanie's family um, has been in Clareton for generations. So long before the steel industry uh, moved into town, her family owned farms on that land. Um, and she grew up there. She moved away. She came back. And over an eight-year period, um, Melanie had four siblings and her parents were there in Clareton. And over an eight-year period, she lost every member of her immediate family to uh, cancer, respiratory disease, or heart disease. And she uh, became an activist. So she became this really outspoken advocate for clean air in, in uh, Clareton. And she's regularly on the local news, you know, demanding that uh, U.S. Steel and also that local regulators do better. Um, she has shared her family's story in lots of public testimony. She gave testimony to former Governor Tom Wolf at one point. Um, and I think... You know, I think her story really is moving to me um, because of her resilience, because she's gone through just such personal trauma related to this issue. And it's incredible to me that she stays and keeps fighting. Um, but then also because, you know, I know there are Melanie Meads all across the country and all across the world who are up against really impossible odds and continue to fight for the health of their communities. So um, almost, you know, I talked to a lot of researchers in this book and some like leaders of NGOs and some policy focused people. Um, and then Melanie is the the only kind of grassroots activist who's really um, heavily featured in the book. But I find her story um, just so moving. And I also think um, there are some reasons for hope in her story. So um, in the last couple of years, the local health department has stepped up its enforcement in part because of demands from Melanie and other community advocates like her. And this year, U.S. Steel shut down three of the oldest and dirtiest uh, Coke ovens at the plant. And that's not going to fix all of the problems in Clareton or in Pittsburgh, but it's expected to help the local airshed a lot. So it's also a good, her story is also a good reminder that these kinds of changes are slow, um, but that they do happen. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I, what I was struck in her story, right, and the way that you frame it there too as well is because once you start zooming in on these specific instances, you know, it's almost as, you know, you get to see the whole picture in a one microcosm, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because you mentioned in this, right, in the, the Clareton, you know, the U.S. steel plant there, they would just ignore environmental regulations, right? And just pay the fines because it was, you know, it was just like the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. And so like in that moment, it's like you have yeah, this is the setup, right? I mean, the, the setup is that we have no regulations over this, that we're just waiting for people to get sick. And people like Melanie and her family are the ones that are paying the price mm -hmm. for this commitment to just kind of like deregulate the world, mm -hmm. right? And let the corporations basically run roughshod over kind of like communities in their area. And so it just seems like we get to see that like real work. It's not an abstract principle about free marketism. 
It is about whether or not Melanie's family lives or dies. That's right. And I thought a lot about that um, writing the book, you know, in 2020, uh, one of, or no, not 2020, sorry. One of, one of Trump's first actions when he took office was establishing this rule that anytime a new regulation was proposed, uh, whoever was proposing it had to pick two others to repeal. And it's part of this really like aggressively anti-regulation campaign that Republicans in the United States have been pushing for decades now. And you're exactly right. Like these are the real ramifications of that. Those, the, our regulations are designed to protect us, to protect everyday Americans. Um, And this kind of messaging that, they're bad for us is just patently untrue. And we can see that very clearly in the stories of people who bear the brunt of the impacts. Yeah, 100%. Well, let me ask you this. I have to say that, you know, and I, I, I mentioned this a little bit before the show is that there's, there's something that I find deeply hopeful about this book. Um, and you know, and I'm, so I'm going to be a little bit uncharacteristically optimistic here. Um, well, I don't want to use optimistic because it's not like, I don't, have optimism for the sake of optimism, right? Um, but I do see pathways here of sorry, convergences of a bunch of problems. And bear with me for a second, because it's like this, it's, it's like, I see a similar problem that we face when we're trying to deal with something as big as climate change, mm-hmm. right? I see the similar kind of problem when we're talking about the problem of governance, right? It's that um, you, you, there's just this one moment where you're, I, well, you do this, there's several points in your book where you talk about this, where it's incredibly difficult for an individual to prove, right, that that chemical caused this cancer, Mm-hmm. Right. It's and but that's almost the way that the system is structured. Right. It's structured to kind of have us blaming ourselves, having us kind of we have to bear not only the brunt of the cancer. Right. But the brunt, brunt of the proof that this stuff is indeed harming us. That's right. right. So everything is pushed back on the individual. But what's clear, like I mean, crystal clear um, kind of in your reporting and in your book, um, as is when we're talking about something like climate change, is that. We can only address these like collectively. That's the mm-hmm. only way to do it, right? And that doesn't mean there's one particular answer and one person's got a problem or one party's got the problem or that kind of stuff, but rather that we have to have a shift in this kind of mentality. And it seems that shift in mentality can also open pathways to solve a whole range of other problems, <laughs> right? About divisions, about the destruction of community, about the ways that we've seen an erosion of our public life and our governance. I mean, am I being too starry-eyed here or, or is there something to that? No, I think there is something to that. And I also think there are a lot of reasons for hope right now and a lot of reasons that we're at a kind of unique moment to be able to push for impact on these issues. Um, so, uh, one example is that for the first time ever, the current proposal for the cancer moonshot plan, the federal cancer moonshot plan, yeah. includes references to cancer prevention. The whole time we've been doing the cancer moonshot has never discussed prevention. Uh, it pretended it did, but it actually just talked about early detection a couple times. And early detection is not prevention, right? Um, so uh, people are pushing, it's under review right now, and people are pushing for more focus on prevention in the moonshot, and specifically for a focus on, um, you know, carcinogenic chemicals. Um, but it's a big deal that they're even putting it in there at all. And then uh, we also have an EPA administrator right now, Michael Reagan, who's uh, lost his first son to a rare childhood cancer when his son was just 15 months old. So he is very aware of these issues and very passionate about these issues. Um, And that's a pretty revolutionary shift from Andrew Wheeler, our former EPA administrator under Trump. And then um, I'll also mention that about three weeks ago, um, I was invited to Washington, D.C. to talk to the EPA's Office of Children's Health Protection about childhood cancer risk and environmental exposures to cancer-causing chemicals. Um, And they reached out to me because they heard about the book. So these conversations are happening and people are receptive and they're listening and they're Um, You know, that kind of change happens slowly, but I think we're really at this moment where there's a level of um, 
of openness to these conversations that has not been there before. And then since you expanded that to, you know, be talk more about like our potential for collective action, I think we're, I think we're at a new place with that too. You know, we talk a lot about the ways that um, the internet has kind of like divided our, um, you know, put us into these adversarial groups. Um, but I think there's also this potential to organize that is, um, we just haven't had in generations past that we have the ability to um, talk to each other about these issues and then very quickly mobilize people to take action um, in a way that uh, I think you're right. I don't think you're being too starry-eyed at all. I think it's really promising. And um, I'm glad to hear you say the book made you feel that way because this issue can be really overwhelming and yeah. scary and intense to learn about. And it's why my book is focused on solutions. So my book really is like, here are the people who are creating change uh, and doing, you know, devoting their lives to this. And I find their story so inspiring. And then here's how the rest of us can help them. Here's what the rest of us can do to support these efforts that are already underway um, and the ways we can chip in to try and make it happen. Yeah, 100%. And I think I think the fact that, you know, some of the people you focus on here, that their their stories are as compelling too as well. Like, um, the, I'm just, I'm, I'm spacing her name right now, because the um, the Indian woman, the scientist who basically does the um, does this research, says like, I looked around and I didn't see any other Indian women doing this work. So I said, well, I'm going to do this work. And so there's these stories of their kind of personal journeys into this work and kind of what led them to this. And it's very similar, you know, um, to, you know, what you saw with, um, you know, all these cases cases of, you know, looking around, seeing a problem and then trying to address it and then building from there. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't say kind of mention and give a shout out to the fact that at the end of your book, you give like uh, it's five or six pages in the appendix, um, a listing of kind of organizations and, um, and places that people can get involved. And I can't tell you what an indispensable work that is, because it does feel like you get to that, you know, you get to that last chapter and you're like, okay, where, where can I go? Well, here's where you can go. Um, and that was such a, a, a like a great move. So if you had to give kind of, you know, people like parting words here of saying like, you know, what would you suggest for, you know, where do people go? How do they get involved with this kind of stuff? Um, um, and what should they do, right, to keep that kind of that hope going that we can actually change? Yeah. So I think the first thing uh, is read the book. Please read the book, buy the book, yes, tell, the your book. Friend, <laughs> tell your friends to read and buy the book. Um, the book I spend a lot of time in the book being like, here's how the rest of us can get involved. And as you said, I have the appendix of um, if if all you have capacity to do is give a donation to one or two of the groups or donate some time to the groups that are already doing this, that's awesome. Like none of us has to start from scratch on this issue, which I think is Ooh, what a relief, what a relief right? Um, there are already people who are uh, doing incredible work to try and advance change that will protect all of us and lead to less cancer in our communities, and we can support them in that work. So another way we can do that is by following these organizations on social media and signing up for their newsletters. So then um, if there's a really timely call to action, say there's a piece of legislation up for consideration in your state or at the national level that would ban a cancer-causing pesticide, um, you know when it's up for consideration and um, you can help amplify calls to action like signing petitions, reaching out to um, key lawmakers, or going to vote, voting on relevant legislation, right? Um, and that makes it much easier to stay in the loop if these things are just kind of in your feed and in your inbox. Um, I also recommend that, uh, you know, there is a role for market pressure here. These uh, big legislative changes take time. And so in the meantime, if you decide you want to uh, start making a shift from some of the products that may have harmful chemicals in them that you realize you're using in your household or for personal care products and you want to make a change, um, there's a really good app for that made by the Environmental Working Group called the Healthy Living App. And um, they kind of independently look for a long list of chemicals that raise cancer risk and have all these other health problems and then verify products that are free of all those chemicals. But if you're going to make a switch, you can really amplify the impact of that switch by telling 
telling both companies why you did it. So if you find out that the hand cream you've used your whole life and you love contains chemicals that raise your cancer risk and you decide to switch to a different brand, um, you know, that's a tiny drop in the bucket for that company, but they, they're going to pay a lot more attention if they start getting notes from people saying, hey, I love your product. I've used it my whole life. I'm, I've decided to stop using it because you use these chemicals. And then same thing if, if you reach out to the company you switch to say, thank you so much for not using these chemicals in your product. I really appreciate it. I'm switching. Um, that can help amplify the impact of some of those personal choices we make. And um, lastly, I think we can support legislative reform in the United States. So I talk about this a little more in the book too, but um, as you can imagine, the chemical industry has a lot more lobbyists than the nonprofits that are lobbying for safer chemical use. So another thing we can do is um, advocate for greater transparency in government and um, campaign finance reform and limiting the power of lobbyists. And I also point to some organizations in my appendix that are um, leading that kind of work that we can support or sign up for news alerts from. Absolutely fantastic. And I would even add to that is like with that list of with that appendix and getting on their social media is that not only can you learn what's actually happening that's out there, but when things are happening in our communities, right, what's happening next door, these are great people to reach out to. Right, to Absolutely. say, hey, I noticed that you're doing this stuff. We're having this thing that's happening in my What would you suggest? How would you? And there are, there are a bunch of resources. Building those networks and those connections through those sources are absolutely essential. So everybody, uh, listen, the book is A New War on Cancer, The Unlikely Heroes, Revolutionizing Prevention. Um, I cannot recommend this enough. Like get it from your local bookstore, like, you know, beg, borrow and steal to get it, you know, <laughs> pass it around. Um, this would be great for a book club reading. I can't even tell you because not only are, are you getting real actionable kind of research here, but it is just kind of wonderfully written and kind of engaging in a way that gives you hope. Um, and, and people who tune into this show, you know that like I see the dark clouds everywhere. So for me to walk away from this book with a bunch of hope in my pocket um, is kind of really important. So I appreciate that so much, Christina. Um, and I appreciate you coming on here to talk about it today. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's been so great talking with you. Well, hey, everybody, make sure you do like Bill McKibben. Get out there and tweet about this book. Get it from your local bookstore and read it and let everybody know why you like it. Um, set up those uh, those book reading groups. Um, uh, I'd be happy to join if somebody wants to get this up. It'd be fantastic to do. Um, and uh, let's talk a little about um, kind of building hope in our communities um, because uh, we all know that we need it as we're fighting the fight every day um, that we're having here. So, Christina, I wish you all the best on uh, kind of where this book goes from here. And uh, I hope that you're, this is just the first of many trips to Washington, D.C. that you'll be asked to come in and talk about uh, talk about your book and the work you're doing. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kevin. All right, everybody. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Want to remind you can help support this show by heading over to patreon.com slash rcpress where you can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Um, and remember to tune back in here tonight. Yes, we're going to be right back here tonight with Catherine Joyce. We're going to be talking about, you know, Moms for Liberty and how they're seeking to destroy our public education. So uh, dark clouds ahead. So get your hope right now with a new war on cancer, the unlikely heroes revolutionizing prevention. We'll see you back here tonight, everybody. Um, until then, I wish you all the best. Um, have a fantastic week. And, uh, you know, keep up the fight, keep hope alive. And tomorrow, make sure you get out and vote in those primaries. I'll be at the polls all day. We'll see you, everybody. I guess I'll fly away now.